0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He
1: calls us to preach the Word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's Word to His people. And that means that when we read the Bible we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 26, verse 34, to chapter 28, verse 9. Um, I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Beeri, the Hethite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon, the Hethite. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered him, Here I am. He said, Look, I am old and do not know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and go out in the field to hunt some game for me. Then make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat, so that I can bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. So while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, bring me game and make a delicious meal for me to eat so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, and I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man. But I am a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me. Then I will be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Disobey me and go get them for me. So he went and got the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food his father loved. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, my father. And he answered, here I am, who are you my son? Jacob replied to his father, I'm Esau. Your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? He replied, Because the Lord your God made it happen for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son, Esau, or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac, When he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Again he asked, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Then he said, Bring it closer to me and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it closer to him and he ate. He brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, "Ah, The smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give to you, from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land, an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow in homage to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow in homage to you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you will be blessed. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had left the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau arrived from his hunting. He had also made some delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, Let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm Esau, your first-born son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. Indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and look, now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, Look, I have made him a master over you. Have given him all of his relatives as his servants, and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac answered him, Look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother, but when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him, and Esau determined in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When the words of her older son Esau were reported to Rebekah, she summoned her younger son Jacob and said to him, listen, listen. Your brother Esau is consoling himself by planning to kill you. So now, my son, listen to me. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him for a few days until your brother's anger subsides. Until your brother's rage turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send for you and bring you back from there. Why should I lose you both in one day? So Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm sick of my life because of these Hethite girls. If Jacob marries someone from around here, like these Hethite girls, what good is my life? So Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, Do not marry any Canaanite girl. Go at once to Badan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Marry one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob to Paddan Aram, to Laban son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, and Esau. Esau noticed that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him to Paddan Aram to get a wife there. When he blessed him, Isaac commanded Jacob, do not marry a Canaanite girl. And Jacob listened to his father and mother and went to Padan Aram. Esau realized that his father Isaac disapproved of the Canaanite women. So Esau went to Ishmael and married, in addition to his other wives, Mahalath, daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. She was the sister of Nebaioth.
0: Uh, God, as we uh, open your word this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive your word written for us. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, You may not want to admit it. or confess it publicly, but for better or for worse, many of you may have seen the Netflix series uh, House of Cards. Uh, I know when I uh, worked in Canberra for a year in politics, it was the most uh, favourite and famous uh, Netflix series to watch, which should probably give everyone a bit of concern. Um, It's based on a novel uh, written in the 80s about a man called Frank Underwood. He's a Democratic congressman from South Carolina. And it tells the story of the dark underbelly of American politics. It's a world of deceit, manipulation, betrayal. But do you know what's most ironic about uh, House of Cards and other series like that? Is that politics is actually meant to have such lofty ideals. It's meant to be for the good of all people. And yet here is the President of the United States with a will that exists not for his country. Not for the citizens, not for the people, but entirely for himself. Many of us would have seen leaders like this, if not in real life, at least uh, in entertainment. It's the irony of a leader saying, I have brought peace, freedom, justice and security to my new empire. And you think to yourself, what, your new empire? But, But even worse than his selfish will are the sinful ways in which he pursues it. The road to power is paved with hypocrisy and casualties. You see, for instance, the caricature of politicians is that they're willing to do whatever it takes. The ends justifies the means. And if we reflect on our own lives for a moment, we are tragically not all that different when it comes to God, are we? I mean, our will is so often self-serving not God-pleasing. So often we reject God's will for how we should live, what we should buy, whom we should marry. We say to ourselves, or we say to God, not your will, but mine be done. And just like Frank Underwood, it's not just our will that's sinful. It's also the ways in which we go about living for Jesus. We take shortcuts. We, we do things in our own strength. We even pursue the right ends, but with the wrong means. We do honorable things, but in such a way that dishonors the Lord. Friends, we need to hear today from this, that we need to trust God enough to do God's will in God's ways. We need to trust God enough to do God's will in God's ways. Because what we see in today's passage that Joanna read for us is is a house of cards. Full of people who don't. Full of people who are full of hypocrisy and casualties. People just like us. So, as we go through this, I want to invite you to reflect on this, maybe scarily enough, as we look at each of these people in this house of cards, you might resonate with one or two of them more than the others. There is, in this passage, quite scarily, something for everyone. I want to introduce you to each of the people in this house. Let's meet the first person. It's the blind father, the blind father. Just look at our chapter 27, verse 1. Isaac was old, and his eyes were so weak that he could not see. That's not just talking about his actual sight. It's also a comment about the eyes of his heart. You see, Isaac is spiritually blind. He, He can't see God's will anymore. Because look at what he does. He goes to his older son, Esau, his favoured son, and he says, Make me a delicious meal that I love, and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you and die. Friends, Can you see what Isaac's doing here? He's actually defying God's will outright. Back in chapter 25, verse 23, God told Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Jacob, the younger son, will be the one to receive the blessings that God had promised. Not Esau. Now it's true, the passage doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think actually as we read our Bible, cumulatively, as we go, it's actually fair to assume that Isaac would have known God's will. He would have known of this conversation. But even if he didn't, even if he didn't, we know from chapter 25 what really motivated him, don't we? We know that Isaac favoured Esau. Esau was his preferred son. For no other reason than the fact that Esau would catch and cook wild game for him to eat. And look at what motivates Isaac now in chapter 27. Not God's will, but his own stomach. Isaac is spiritually blind, controlled by his flesh, defying God's will. It's actually quite sad, isn't it? Just think about last week, we were talking about God wanted Isaac to look back on his father Abraham, to see his faithfulness over Abraham's entire life. Isaac should have been able to look back at his dad and go, wow, hasn't God been faithful? He should have been able to look back at his own life and say, wow, hasn't God been faithful? And yet here is Isaac at the end of his life, a man who has seen God's faithfulness at every stage of his life, but now he is blind and cannot see God's will at all. Reese Bazant uh, was here a few weeks ago, he preached on 2 John. Uh, I was in Japan, for those of you who didn't know, but that's, that's for then. It's long gone now. Um, Reese once said to me something really interesting. He said, oh, Adam, uh, often we focus on the sins of young people, but at my age, Reese said, I struggle with the sins of old people. And I sit there and go, uh-huh, uh-huh, I'm not allowed to say anything, right? But this is what he tells me, and he goes, in our older age, we don't struggle with the same sort of sins that I struggled with when I was 20 and 30. He goes, his peers at his age struggle with things like cynicism and pride at the zeal of younger Christians. The, the thought that I'm too old to change, which really means I'm too old to find my sin. And he goes, I shouldn't be let off the hook just because I'm older, but we need to be aware at different ages we confront different things. And that's what happened to Isaac. In his older age, he became blind to God's will and controlled by his flesh. Friends, we must not be like Isaac. Instead, we must be like old Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, who saw the child Jesus and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. I love this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's how I want to age. I want to age like old Simeon. At college, they tell us, becoming a pastor is all about preparing people to die well no matter what age we are. It's all about preparing us to meet the Lord. And that means helping us see God's will ever more clearly until we see him face to face. We must not be like the blind father who in the end of his life defied God's will. But we must also beware and be not like the manipulative mother who we find in verses 5 to 17. Look at it. Rebecca overhears what Isaac says to Esau. She runs to Jacob, her favorite son, and tells him in verse 8, literally this is how it washes up. Now, my son, listen to my voice and that which I order you. Listen to my voice, that which I order you. Her emphasis is on the word I, not Isaac, not God, Rebecca. Her voice, her will is what Isaac must obey, so she devises a scheme, a plan to charmingly manipulate her blind old husband into giving his blessing to Jacob, not Esau. She tells Jacob, here's the plan, right? Bring two goats and I'll cook them into this delicious meal. I'll then take your older brother's clothes and you can wear them. And so that when your dad, who can't see you, touches your arm, he'll he'll realize, well, he'll think that you're Esau, not, not you. And if all goes according to plan, guess what? You'll be able to steal your brother's blessing. Pretty awful stuff, isn't it? It's almost a Claire Underwood of this house of cards with a wife like that who needs enemies. You see, as Isaac's wife, Rebecca should have been going to her husband and reminding him of God's will to bless Jacob. But she does exactly what Eve did to Adam. She undermines her husband's authority. She leads him into sin. But just like her husband, she's driven by this competing favoritism for the other son. You see, she only happens to want what God wants. Do you get that? Like, God always wanted Jacob. She also wants Jacob, but but she doesn't really, she's not actually thinking about what God wants. She's definitely not thinking about God's ways. In many ways, she is willing to do whatever it takes to get whatever she wants. She's even willing for her son to sin for the sake of himself. Did you notice that? When Jacob worries that he might be seen and caught by God, what does she say? Your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me. Not God. Me. You see, if Isaac was defying God's will, then Rebecca, she's, she's almost distorting God's will to justify her own. It looks like she's going after the same thing as God is, but she is not really. It's all about her. Rebecca's like the worst Asian auntie you could ever imagine. The mother who wants her daughter's happiness so much that she's willing to sacrifice her holiness. Who tells her son, God cares about your success, but she doesn't care about his sanctification. And when her son asks, but but doesn't God care about my sanctification? The mum looks at her son and says, don't worry about God. I'll deal with him. We laugh, but it's easy to fall into it. Especially for the people we most love. To distort God's will to justify our own. But there is also the deceitful son, isn't there? Because Jacob puts his mother's plan into action. In verse 19, he lies to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Double lie. Then Isaac questions how he could have come home so quickly. Wow, that was fast. And then Jacob does the worst thing of all. He brings God into it because the Lord your God made it happen for me. You can almost hear God from heaven going, no, 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 no. don't bring me into this, right? Don't use God to justify your sin. Then Isaac gives him another chance unknowingly. Are you really my son Esau? You can almost hear, did God really say? And Jacob lies again, I am. And in verses 27 and 29, Jacob steals and snatches the blessing from his blind old father. This seems pretty awful stuff, isn't it? A deceitful son is willing to steal from his blind old foolish father. But here's the greatest tragedy of all. God had already promised the very blessing that Jacob was seeking to steal. You know, back in chapter 25, verse 23, God already promised Rebekah, Jacob's going to be the one to inherit the blessings. So what's Jacob doing? Why is he trying to steal what God has already promised to give? It's almost like a father who promises to give his daughter all his wealth, but she doesn't believe him. So she breaks into his house, forges his will, and kills him in his sleep. All so that she can secure for herself what her father already promised. It's foolish, isn't it? You see, if Isaac defied God's will and Rebekah distorted God's will, then it's almost as if Jacob is seeking, seeking God's will, but not in God's ways. He lies, cheats, and steals to get what God was always going to give. We need to trust God enough to do God's will in God's ways. But I want you to know that's actually the sin right throughout Genesis so far, seeking God's will but not in God's ways. Just think about Adam and Eve. God created them according to his likeness, but why did Adam and Eve sin against God? It's Because the serpent said, when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. But, but that's silly, isn't that what God already promised? He was always going to make them more like him. But instead of trusting God's words, instead of trusting God's time, instead of trusting God's ways, Adam and Eve, yeah, they sought God's will, but not in God's ways. Think about Abraham and Sarah. God promised them offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. But instead of trusting God's words and trusting God's time, Sarah gave her slave Hagar to sleep with Abraham and bear a child. She was seeking God's will, but not in God's ways. Or think about you and me. We seek God's will to advance his kingdom here on earth, but we use money and power to bring about a political kingdom. That is not God's way. We seek God's will to grow a healthy, multiplying and evangelistic church, but we do not pray to God and we rely on our own strength to do so. That is not God's way. We seek seek God's will to make his people holy and righteous and blameless. But we get there by being harsh, impatient and unkind towards the weak and the immature. That is not God's way. We seek God's will to raise our children, to live for the Lord Jesus. But we demand their outward obedience to a law more than their inward love for the Lord. That is not God's way. So, you, so you've got to wonder why. Right? Do you ever have those moments where, I was saying this the other week, where you sin against God and you just like, why am I like that? Why do we not trust God's ways? I'm going to take a punt. right? The text doesn't tell us this, but let me offer some reflections on why I think this is the case. I think it's because we go, yep, God's will is good, on board with that. But when it comes to God's ways and methods, we go, oh. I can get there cheaper, faster, and better. God's just a bit inefficient. It's a bit slow. A bit unnecessarily patient with people. Let, let, let me, let me just think about this for a moment. How do we correct each other in our sin, right? As a church community, we want to find ways to spur each other onto holiness. I have two sets of conversations in church life. Conversation number one goes like this. Adam, I know my friend's living in sin. I just try not to tell them about it because I just try to listen so that he feels safe and loved. Otherwise, he'll feel like he can't be forgiven. Conversation number one. Conversation number two. Adam, I don't care if I'm harsh with that person. I need to make them see their sin so they can repent. Otherwise, I'm just justifying their sin. And I'm like, you guys should talk sometime, right? Like, you see the problem, don't you? Because in both cases, we're actually seeking God's will, but we're not seeking it in his ways. Think about 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, but still instructing his opponents, but with gentleness. Try and do that. We must instruct and we must be gentle, the means matter just as much as the ends. You see, friends, if you want to see someone who did God's will in God's ways perfectly, look at God's Son. I mean, Jesus met with sinners without ever justifying their sin. He forgave us all of all the wrong things that were would ever done, and he did it without excusing just how serious they are. He didn't come along and just hit the delete button on our record as if our crimes don't matter. No, he dealt with our guilt by taking it on himself. In Romans 3.26, God is righteous and he declares righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Can you see, friends, the cross is where Jesus perfectly did God's will in God's ways. The cross is where Jesus cleared our record without ever saying that our sins don't matter. And if Jesus committed himself both to God's will and God's ways, how can we not do the same? Friends, we must not be the deceitful son who sought God's will, but not in God's ways. But we also must not be his foolish brother, his foolish brother. Look at verse 30. This is probably the most tragic scene of all. Esau comes home. He prepares a night. Just imagine being Esau. You've been promised the blessings that you know you really shouldn't get. Got to skip in your step, right? You come back, prepare the best meal you can, go in to see your dad, and it's like, bah, I'm here. Here's your meal. It's like, who are you, right? Like, this is going to be awful. Jacob's stolen the blessing, and there's nothing left for Esau but a curse. Esau's furious, and just like Cain, he plots to kill his brother. I'm a younger brother. There are a few things as terrifying as the wrath of your older brother, to the point where you want your mother to send you away to your cousin's place to let your brother cool off. But I want you to notice the tragic irony of this entire situation, right? Think about this. Isaac is gutted. I mean, sorry, Esau's gutted. He is so grieved that his younger brother has come and snitched on him and stolen his blessing. Verse 36, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He who grasps at the heel. When I was in the womb and coming out, he grabbed my heel then. Now he steals my blessing now. cheated me twice now. He took my birthright once and now, look, he's taken my blessing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just back up, right? Think about this. The way I remember it, mate, like you couldn't care less about your birthright. Back in chapter 25, didn't you say to Jacob, I'm about to die. Haven't you had that feeling after church? You're just so hungry? I could die right now. Well, I'm not sure you're really going to die. The worst part is people grammatically use it incorrectly. I'm literally starving to death. You are not literally starving to death. You are metaphorically starving to death, you're figuratively starving to death, death, and so is Esau. What good is a birthright to me? Or good grammar. Esau trades away his birthright. I mean, it's just awful. He's complaining about it. He stole my birthright. You sold it for a bowl of lentil stew. Lentil stew. Not, not beef rendang. Not kimchi jjigae, Not a beautiful casserole bowl of beans. (laughs) you got to hate your birthright then. Israel is so grieved at losing a blessing he's never cared about. This is a man who has grown up hearing God's promise from the day he was born, who had every spiritual privilege that the Israelites would later have. But what did he do? He neglected it all. He took it for granted. He preferred to satisfy his stomach with a bowl of beans. He lived in the house of God whilst living off the pleasures of the world. And now he wants God's blessing. But it's too late to apologize, isn't it? What a warning for all of us who so easily neglect the gospel. Hebrews 12 warns us to make sure Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, that's this passage, he was rejected. Even though he sought it with tears. Because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. What a sobering morning. Too often I meet Christians who, just like Esau, stay in the church but live like the world. And we want to have it both ways. We think to ourselves, you know what, I'll still call myself a Christian. I'll still come to church. I'll even join a BLT, but now, for now, let me live myself. Let me chase the world and then one day, when I've done it all, I'll come back to God then I'll take him seriously. Surely, if I know the gospel correctly, which you do, as did Esau, God will take me back then. I think Genesis and Hebrews are both telling us, don't be so sure that day will come. If Esau did not find an opportunity for repentance, how sure are we that we will? How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Are we like Isaac, who just outright defied God's will? Are we like Rebecca, who distorted God's will to justify her own? Are we like Jacob, who sought God's will but not in God's way? Or are we like Esau, who had heard about God's will his whole life, but just took it for granted. There are, though, no two more people in this house of cards. But I want to say you might just have missed them. If you didn't read it closely enough, you would have missed them, and they are the foreign wives. You know, sometimes um, in your BLT small groups, you may have felt this, when you read the Bible, you, we read it as if it was an English book written in the 21st century. And so we just kind of read it like we would any other book like that. And, but I kind of want to say it's not. The Bible was written in an ancient world, in an ancient time, and in an ancient language. So if you open a, a standard book today, like people still read books, don't they? Right they, You, you separate into chapters, you've got a table of contents, you look at the chapter, that's how they structure it. But that's not how they structured chapters in the, old, in, 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 in the Bible. They didn't have chapters. Instead, what they would do is an author would often divide a chapter, section it off, by starting and ending it with two passages about the very same topic right? You start with one topic, you end with one topic, and everything in between that is the chapter. It's almost like they act like a photo frame that helps us see the picture and what it's all about in the middle. And the two passages here introduce our final two characters. If you've got your Bible, look at it. The first passage is in chapter 26, verses 34 to 35, and the second passage is in chapter 27, verse 46 to chapter 28, verse 9. I said that too fast, first one, chapter 26, verses 34 to 35, just two small verses, and then yadda yadda yadda, then you get to chapter 27, verse 46, that runs until 28, verse 9. They're the two bookends, they're the chapter conclusion, uh, opening and conclusion, and look at what they're both about. They're both about Esau's foreign wives. The first passage simply tells us that Esau married two women from outside God's people and they made life bitter for his parents. We can tell as much from that, not a good thing. Second passage then revisits these same two women and Rebekah says, I'm sick of my life because of these Hittite girls. I suspect... I shouldn't say that, that's okay, I'll just leave it there. So she sends Jacob to Haran to protect him from his brother and so she tells him, do not marry a Canaanite girl, don't be like your brother. It feels very familiar, doesn't all this, like family discussions that no one tells anyone else. Don't marry someone from outside God's people. So here's the question. What does it say or tell us that our passage today is bracketed by these two passages? It tells us one of two things, maybe both. Either Esau neglects God's will so much that he even marries outside of God's people or Esau neglects God's will so much because he marries outside God's people and they take his heart away. Now, whether or not these marriages were a cause or a consequence of Esau's neglect, they do show us this much, that few relationships more than marriage disclose or determine what we value. Few relationships more than marriage disclose or determine what we value what we value. If you want to see what someone values, look at who they marry. And can I say, just as an aside, um, I often get asked, um, being an unmarried pastor in modern-day Australia is considered um, a minority situation, so I get asked quite a bit, how do you go being um, unmarried and pastoring a church full of married people? And I, I say, look, personally I'm okay, but I suspect that's because I've seen how marriage helps and hinders people. I've seen it go really well and really badly. And I hate to say it that, that you know, we often talk about the ones that go really well, and so all the unmarried people feel salty about it. Right? Let's call it, right? Uh, but, but, if few relationships more than marriage also determine what we value... I've seen marriage change people for better and for worse, put it that way. I've, I've heard one younger guy say of an older guy who used to read with him. I I find it hard to say, but it's not even my But is it I I used to respect him so much. But then when he got married, he changed entirely. And all these priorities shifted. And I hate to say it. But as someone who's not married, I look at both of them and go, oh, you know what? It's not marriage that matters, actually. It's where your heart is at. But it will shape you and change you one way or the other. See, it is especially when it comes to whom we marry that we must trust God enough to do his will in his ways. And that means trusting him to only marry within God's people. I know it's hard to hear because few feelings run as deep as romantic love. But the very placement of these two passages is meant to show us just how harmful and hurtful it can be if we marry outside of God's people. We see that it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca, but that's not the point. Don't just think about yourself here. Think about the other person, actually. You see, if you really love them. A few years ago, I had a a, a younger guy who was in my youth group, uh, and he called me, and he and he said to me, "Oh, Adam, I I met this girl. I love her." I'm like, "Wow, this is like." At, at youth group, he was a cool guy, so he'd never say anything like that. So I'm like, "Oh, wow! Like he's kind of met someone who really cares about, which is which is lovely." And he goes, but but she doesn't she doesn't follow Jesus. And I thought, oh gosh, my tears of joy, tears of sadness, all mixed, you know, and just okay. And he says to me, I don't oh, I don't know what to do, but but and I'm like, mate, I think you know what to do, and I think you know what you've decided as well, but let's work with this, okay? And I think what's so hard is that in the end they, they were together for years. But it took his heart away from the Lord. I'm not saying it will take yours heart, I I can't know that. But I do think to myself that if your heart really loves them, won't you value their relationship with the Lord over their relationship with you? Like surely that's got to be the thing. I know this can be hard to... Can I say this is part of my job that I hate doing? But it's like we were looking at before. We've got to be honest enough to be gentle and instruct each other as well. I know it can be hard to hear, but I want to tell you it's even harder to live. Just ask any Christian who's lived it before. I suspect what this passage is telling us that when it comes to marriage, which is one of the deepest relationships you could ever have in life, it's not worth it not doing it God's way. Not not just, not just because it's right, but because it's good. We have to trust God's, that God's will and God's ways are for our good and for our joy. Do you realise, friends, that almost everyone in this passage either defies God's will or rejects God's ways? And I think that what sits beneath all of this, including the issue we've just talked about, is that wrong belief that we all have in our hearts that God is not generous Somewhere deep in our hearts, we think that God won't really give us what he promised. We don't really think that God will give us what we want, and we don't really think that God will give us what we need. But I want to let you know that we worship a generous God. Please know that we worship a generous God. Because in chapter 8, verse 3 to 4, what does God do? He reaffirms his promise to Jacob in spite of all of his deception. If it were me, I would have terminated this contract without notice for a material breach over and over and over again. But you got to thank God that it's not like me. you got to thank God that it's not like us. you got to thank God that he generously reaffirms his promise. He generously re gifts that blessing over and over and over again. And here's my question. What might might Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau all have done if they really believed that God was generous? Don't you think that if they really believed that God would provide for their every need, they would have never felt the need to defy his will? If they really believed that God was generous and super abundant in his grace, why would I ever have to reject his ways? If I really believed that God was good, wouldn't Isaac have trusted that God would generously provide for his beloved son Esau? If Rebecca really believed that God was super abundantly generous, wouldn't she have trusted God's will for Jacob that it was far more generous and better than her own? Wouldn't Jacob have trusted that God would generously give him his blessing in his time and in his ways? Wouldn't Esau have generously realized the generosity of God right from the get-go and never taken it for granted? And what if you and I really believed that God was generous? Don't you think that if we really believed that God would generously provide for our every need, we would follow His will and trust His ways? I mean, gosh, Romans 8.32. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Now, everything doesn't mean marriage or children, a house or a car or career or a home. It means everything that's so much more than those lesser treasures of this world. I've spoken to enough people and felt this in my heart enough to know this much. It sounds silly, but I know how many of us think it. We hear God's word in Genesis or in Romans. We hear that God and Jesus are better than anything else. We revisit that C.S. Lewis quote over and over again, that, that we are creatures with whose, whose desires are far too small. And we sit there and we go, yeah. I wouldn't tell my pastor this or my friend this, but if I'm to be honest, I want a spouse. I don't want a saviour. I want a great career. I don't really want a king. I want all the gifts of this world, but I don't really want the one who gives it. Great. Salvation. Cool story. I'll get there when I'm old. But for now, that's all I want. But I think when we say, I'd prefer a spouse over a saviour, what we really mean is, I want my spouse to be my saviour. And what God promises is not a spouse. What God generously gives is his son. What God generously gives is his saviour, who is so much better. So much better. No one can be our saviour but Jesus Friends, we need to trust that God is so generous that what He gives is so much better and so much more worth it. As we close this week, I've been visiting BLTs just to randomly audit and see how you guys are going. Um, I dropped by uh, Dave and, and Sam Chen's BLT this week. We were talking about this exact passage. And Cassie said something that really stuck with me that I found very helpful. So what she said, generous isn't enough of a word to describe our God. Generous isn't enough of a word to describe our God. Isn't that beautiful? See, in this house, we've seen all the ways in which we get it wrong. But I want to say we get it wrong because we actually fundamentally do not believe that God is a generous God who will give us all we need and satisfy us in every possible way. So will we trust him enough to do his will in his way? Will, he tr- will we trust that he's generous to give us everything we truly need? Yeah? Why don't I pray for us? God, we know this is a hard word. We know that your word in Genesis shines a spotlight on our hearts, shows us, God, where our hearts are not trusting your will or your ways, and we know it's hard and painful. God, we see Isaac and we see that in his older age, he just lost his way and was blind to your will and just ended up defying it. God, keep our eyes clearly fixed on your son. Keep our eyes open. And as we get older in age, help us, God, be softer, more tender, more loving, more desiring of your will. God, we've seen in Rebecca, someone who distorted your will to justify her own and we know how often we do that when it comes to our relationships, our work and the things that we love. God, help us not fool ourselves, help us not be so deceived by sin, help us see so clearly that your will is better than ours for us and those we love. Sometimes we look at God Isaac and we see how he was seeking your will with the best of intentions maybe or not but definitely not seeking it your way. And maybe it's because we do not believe that your ways are best. God, in that moment, forgive us and help us see that your ways are not only right, but they are good. Or maybe, God, we're like Esau, who neglected your will his whole life and who let that bleed through into the relationships in life which matter most. God, in this area where it's so hard and so painful, whether it's for us or our friends or the people we love, Give us the strength by your Spirit to trust, God, that your will and your ways are better and work more greatly for our joy. Thank you for being a generous God, for giving us your Son, for giving us your Spirit, and for giving us absolutely everything we need. And so we, so we pray and so we sing, yet not my will, but yours be done. Amen.